Good morning. Good morning to those who are online joining us. Thank you for being here. I'm going to ask you now if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Now, I'm not going to do what we normally do, which is to take time to read the text and we stand up and read. I'm going to do that differently today because we're covering uh, an entire chapter. If you could bring me down just a bit in the back. Thank you. Appreciate that. So we will cover the text uh, in its entirety uh, as we work our way through the sermon. So I'm not going to ask you to stand today. Uh, but please keep your Bibles open as I will reference the text after we read at different points. And I want you to be able to look at the Bible and see what God's word says for yourself. And so what we're going to do, first of all, just begin with a word of prayer. Uh, ask the Lord to be with and bless us during our time together. And at home, we pray that you join us in prayer as well. Uh, and then we'll jump right into our message for today. So let, let's bow together and let's solicit the Lord's aid in, uh, in our endeavors today. Father, we thank you. You are awesome and great. Oh, Lord, I want to come to you with the understanding that the place that I stand in really does not belong to me, but belongs to your son, Jesus. And you have afforded me this privilege to stand in this place on his behalf, to represent him and speaking on your behalf. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help me to do that uh, in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Lord Jesus, I think back when you prayed in John 17, those opening words, that you wanted the Father to be honored and glorified. And so, Father, I do pray that you would help me to do that today. I realize, Lord, that there are human limitations. Um, I come realizing that, that I have human limitations and that so do the people that I am speaking to. Lord, and we then, in light of that, seek the aid of your spirit. We ask that he would work in us and among us, Lord. We all come, Lord, today with a mixed bag. Some of us, it's maybe perhaps gaps in knowledge. For others of us, it is commitments that we've already made in our heart that need to be changed. For some of us, there are issues in our life that we're not willing to let go of, and we need your spirit to point that out give and empower us to release those things and to move in a new direction. Um, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. We're trusting that you would work because we're asking you to and because you're merciful and you're gracious and you desire to help your people. And so, Lord, if there's anything that would keep you from working among us, that would separate us from you, that we've left unconfessed or not dealt with, we ask that you would pardon us right now. We pray that you make your word clear to us and that you would use your word in the inner person to bring about a change so that what is seen and witnessed as our, in our lives is something different than perhaps a path we would have traveled in another way. We ask these things in the precious and powerful and wonderful name of your dear son who's sitting right next to you now. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So at the end of August, I was afforded the privilege to be able to travel to the state of Delaware to be able to officiate a wedding for some friends from church. Now, I've never been to Delaware before, and so I was not familiar with what was the best path to travel to get there. Um, I just in my years here, 
an opportunity had not presented itself where I would travel to Delaware. And so uh, it just so happened in God's providential care of the world that a couple of weeks beforehand, as I was in between services, between the service here on a Sunday right after this service, one of the brothers who was coming in from serving as a guardian happened to be in the office, and I just struck up a conversation with him. And in the process of, process of having this conversation, I was sharing with him what was going on. I was preparing for this wedding and getting ready for that and getting ready to head down, but I was unfamiliar with the best way to go. And it just so happens that he had been that, that way into that location a, a number of times before. Uh, and so he took time to tell me about the best path to take. And then he took time, he took a sheet of paper, and he wrote down the instructions that I was to follow so that I could get to the destination that he had just described to me. I then kept that paper on my desk until it was time for me to leave, and at the time that I needed it, I then followed those instructions, and my family and I arrived safely and happily to the destination that we had desired because someone had charted the path for us. And because we had followed those instructions, we ended up right where we wanted to be. And today in Romans chapter 4, Paul has written down the way to find peace with God. I would describe it as the way of faith. And if we will be willing to follow that path that he has shared in this text, we will end up at that desired location of peace with God. Now, along the way, Paul is going to point out some paths that we need to avoid. And he's going to do that by dealing with some ideas that were prevalent during his day and in his culture and time. And if we'll avoid those paths, we'll make it to the place, our destination. As you remember, in the letter of Romans, Paul has been using a style of writing in which he has pitted himself against this imaginary opponent that represents the actual views of real people. There are various ideas about who he's dealing with, and perhaps it is some of those who are actually present in the church in Rome, in light of the entirety and the context of the letter of, of Romans. But this imaginary person is either a Jewish teacher or a Jewish Christian who's bringing forth the ideas that were prevalent in Judaism during that period. Now, so far in the letter, if you remember that Paul has shown and argued that both Jews and Gentiles are equally guilty of sin before God. And this poses a significant problem for us as humans in light of the reality of a future day of judgment at the end of human history. And Paul ultimately lays out in chapter 3 that the only way to be declared to be in a right relationship with God, by God, is through faith in Jesus. Now Paul has already stated in chapter 3 verse 21 that the evidence of this way of salvation that he has proclaimed faithfully for the last 20 to 30 years of ministry is not something new. It is something firmly rooted in God's revelation as he appeals to the law and the prophets. And he's going to offer proof of that in Romans chapter 4. As we'll see, Paul is going to draw upon key moments in the life of a revered figure in Judaism which is Abraham, to illustrate and to argue this way of faith. I'm going to divide the text into five segments as Paul discusses this way of faith. And what you're going to notice is that there are two reoccurring themes that continue to surface uh, 
throughout the variety of the text as we move through it. One is this concept of being justified or declared right or put in the right by God through faith. And the second theme that runs through the entirety of the text is that this idea that the Gentiles, those who are not of the biological family of Abraham, are included into the people of God equally with the Jews. And by doing this, Paul is going to ultimately bring out more details about the concepts and ideas that he's already raised in the previous chapter. And so my hope today is simply like Google to map out the course for you of what faith looks like as you travel it along the way. So let's jump right in. Here's my first idea of how we're going to look at the text. The way of faith leads to a right relationship with God. The way of faith leads to a right relationship with God. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4 together. What then shall we say, shall we, shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and he was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage, wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaking or speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the opening line of chapter 4, if you look at verse 1, you'll notice that Paul still seems to be in conversation with this imaginary partner. We notice that by the observation of what he writes in the text, our forefather according to the flesh, that we say we share the same ancestry. And so he's still in conversation with this particular dialogue partner. Now, Abraham was held up by the Jews of his day from some of the writings that we have that have been preserved through time as a model of faithful obedience to God. It might be the same way today some of us might hold up Tom Brady when we talk about who's a great quarterback or LeBron James when we talk about who is a great basketball player. Some of the writings that we have that have been preserved even say that Abraham received this righteousness because of his obedience to God when he was tested. Here, referencing what we see in Genesis chapter 22. Dr. Andrew Doss put it this way. He said, Second Temple Jews were concerned not only with ethnic identity and adherence to boundary markers, things like keeping the Sabbath, circumcision but also with concrete, rigorous obedience to the law as a whole. Now, if you notice in the text what Paul does, he starts off accepting this view that was common in his culture as it deals with Abraham, but he po points out 
the conclusion of what this would mean if their view was to be accepted. If Abraham, as was being asserted during his day by many other writings, then it would mean that Abraham's righteousness came because of his obedience to God. And then he goes on to say that if that were true, then Abraham would have a reason to boast. That is to speak about his human achievement. But if you notice at the end of verse two, Paul begins quickly to counter this idea as he takes his readers back to the Bible to read what the text actually said. Here he quotes from Genesis chapter 15 and verse six, and then he follows it up with an illustration from the commercial sector of his day. And I think he uses an illustration that we can all understand. Let me try to illustrate it with, a, with something that happened in my own life. So it was either about a year or two years ago that my refrigerator at home started to malfunction. And unfortunately, I am not like the other pastors on our staff. All of our other pastors are handymen. They are gifted. They're mechanically inclined. They can do all kinds of things. They probably could build a house for you if we just took a staff day to do it. <laughs> but unfortunately, unlike all the other pastors on staff, I'm not like that. So I called GE. And GE was happy to receive my call. And they said, we have someone who has the skills and the ability to fix your problem. And so uh, a few hours later, a gentleman arrived in a GE truck at my home, uh, made his way into my home and checked out my problem, said, I'll be back in a week with the parts. And so a week passed and he came back with the parts. And then after that, he went in and pulled out my refrigerator from the wall and began his work. And a few hours later, everything that was wrong with the refrigerator was resolved. I would like to tell you that out of the kindness of his heart, he simply smiled, waved, and left. It didn't happen. He went into his bag of tricks, and out of his bag, he pulled a small machine. And that small machine said, payment required. I then pulled out of my wallet a card, and I used that card to tap against his little machine for which it accepted the method of payment. And then to show that I had paid, he printed out a little receipt for me and he put it in my hands. And then he headed off about his business. You know what was missing? There was no gratitude in the sense of like, hey, brother, I really appreciate that you would pay me. I'm so glad that you gave me this money. I know you didn't have to do it, but you did it anyway. And I'm grateful for that. No, 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 that, that wasn't his attitude. His attitude was, I have just done work for you, and the obligation or the agreement that we made was that when I finished my work, you owed me something. And that was in the form of money. And if I did not pay him, if I had asked him to, to leave my house, there probably would have been some litigation that would have happened and put me in a legal situation until I had resolved the issue because something was owed because something had been done. I'm sure you feel the same way about your check when you get it. You probably don't call your employer and say to your employer, oh, thank you so much for letting me work this week and have some money. No, you said, I worked this week, and where's my check? And if your check didn't show up in your account, you would complain. 
you would go visit your boss. Y'all would have a conference. And if they didn't resolve it, then you would call your lawyer up and say, somebody's done something wrong because they owe to me based on what I've done. But the same is not true of a gift. Gifts are given without any work required. And as Paul explains in verse 5, God decides to gift his righteousness to anyone, Jew or Gentile, that will rely on him by trust instead of relying upon his or her human efforts. Whereas in previous chapters, Paul referred to works of the law that was relevant for his Jewish readers, here he drops that qualification in chapter 4. Instead, he uses a more general term, just works. Now, some scholars believe that what Paul is doing here uh, is simply using a shortened for his concept that he's already raised. But I think Dr. Moo has a good point here. Abraham lived long before the law, and it seems that Paul might be wanting to avoid an anachronism here. So Dr. Moo, in light of this, defines work in this way as Paul uses it in this section of Romans. The works are then broadly those things a person does in obedience to God or whatever law one has access to. As Paul has already stated, this idea of being justified by faith in God finds its support in the law and the prophets. And Abraham proved how the law supports Paul's message. But then Paul then draws upon David as an example by using Psalm 32 to illustrate how the law also supports this message that he claims. And by quoting from Psalm 32, we find out more about this concept of what Paul has in mind when we're talking about this idea of being declared or receiving righteousness from God by faith. If you notice what he says in the text, it then includes a concept or an idea of God not counting or crediting sin to one's account in his divine ledger. And this ultimately equals this idea or concept of the forgiveness of sin. See, there were some in Paul's day who believed that in heaven, God kept a ledger. And in his ledger, he had an account for every human life to which things could be credited or debited based on the actions of humans. But Paul's main point here is this. Adam, I mean, Abraham didn't work. Instead, he believed. It was his faith, not his works, that caused righteousness to be credited to his account. Dr. Moo goes on after a comparative analysis with other Old Testament texts to say God graciously viewed Abraham's faith as having a, in itself fulfilled all that God expected of Abraham in order to be in the right before him. See, Abraham couldn't boast because it was not based on his works. It was based on faith, and thus it was not due to him as something old, but simply God in his grace acting towards Abraham. I believe this ought to give us pause today to consider our own lives, especially for those who have been around and in the church for a number of years. I would say if your reason, if the reason why you're motivated to church service, perhaps like the idea of serving in children's ministry or community service, perhaps like the idea of taking care of or ministering to the homeless, 
even though those things are good things and you ought to do those things. But if in your heart, at the deepest level, which you only know, if the reason that you're motivated to do those things ultimately is because you believe in your heart that if you continue to do these kind of things, you're hoping that in God's heavenly ledger, he will continue to accrue to your account good works and at the end of the day, declare you righteous because of what you've done then I have some sad news for you. It's not going to work out the way you think. The problem is that the sin remains in your ledger in God's heavenly account and your good works won't remove them. They won't be enough. And so what the Bible says, what Paul says, and what Scripture affirms is what you need from God is grace. And so Paul says, instead, you must follow as Abraham did the way of faith. That brings me to my second thing in the text, the second idea I want to raise. The way of faith makes forgiveness available to everyone. The way of faith makes forgiveness available to everyone. Let's look at verses 9 through 12 together. Go back to Romans chapter 4. We'll pick up verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised circumcised. Paul now picks up the language of Psalms 32, this language of blessing that David has already laid out in Psalm 32, referring here, of course, the blessing being the forgiveness of sins, God not crediting to one's account sins, but covering or, or not putting it on your account in his heavenly ledger. And he goes on to ask this question, is this blessing, this blessing of God not putting on your account the sins that you've committed? Is it only for one group or is it for both groups? Now, circumcision in its day, as Paul's, had, Paul's day, had a variety and a, a host of complex ideas that had been attached over time to it. Uh, we won't get into all that. And it had a variety of meanings. I, I won't go into all those different things. But one key thing that it did do was to distinguish for the Jews who was part of this covenant community called Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and those who were outside the family who were referred to by the title of the nations or the Gentiles. And what Paul seems to be doing here in the text is he's combating this idea that some had asserted that circumcision was necessary to benefit from the blessing that belonged to Abraham 
and his descendants. See, some were holding the concept or idea that in order to receive this blessing, you had to be part of the family. This was a family blessing, and if you weren't in the family, then you couldn't enjoy this blessing. And the way for you to be in the family was to be circumcised as a male to show that you had joined the covenant community. In the text, in contrast, what Paul does is he looks at the chronological order of events as they are laid out by Moses in Abraham's life. Paul is simply exegeting the text. Abraham received the blessing of his faith, that is to be counted as righteous, years before he was circumcised. That is, Genesis 15 precedes Genesis 17 by several years. And unlike others in his day, Paul said the circumcision was simply a way to remind and to confirm to Abraham what he already possessed by faith. And God did it this way so that Abraham could become the spiritual parent of the Gentiles without the need of circumcision and also of the Jews. Now, we become spiritual heirs of Abraham by faith, Paul says, and not by means of circumcision. Dr. Craig Keener says this, people spoke about ethnic and spiritual ancestry. Spiritual ancestors were those in whose ways one walked. For example, those who imitated or you imitated as if they were your parents. This means the blessing of forgiveness is available to everyone by faith, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, what might be an implication for those of us who are living today reflecting on this text? It, it might be that there are no religious rituals that we need to go through to join God's family. We join the people of God by faith in God through Jesus, his son. And in becoming a member of God's family, we receive the blessing of Abraham. Now, notice that sometimes people try to use baptism as a means by which they see themselves as joining God's family. But if we take the evidence of Acts chapter 10 and, and see how God responded, that we realize that it is to be a sign of what you ought to already possess by faith. So it's not religious rituals that get us in, but it's faith that brings us into a relationship with God. As I was reflecting on this text, it, it took me back to my childhood years. I was reminded of my time at VBS. This, you know, this summer we had a chance to, to do VBS, and I was reminded because one of the things like, that we always did in VBS growing up that we do in VBS here is we would sing songs. Unfortunately, unlike uh, what Living Water does, we don't come up with these wonderful new catchy tracks and songs each year that, that they get you moving and you're like, yeah, something new this year. For whatever reason, in my church, we always sang the same songs every year. And, and, and so one of those songs that, that got cemented in my mind by repeated use year after year was this song. And it, it went something like this. Perhaps you remember it said, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. And then it goes on to make this astounding claim for me as a Gentile, and I wasn't thinking theologically at the moment, but it says, I am one of them, and so are you. 
So let's just praise the Lord. Now, as a child, I didn't realize what was being asserted in that song. But that song had powerful theological meaning. It was saying, look, God's family, who I was on the outside of, now I'm able to be a part of because of what Jesus has done. And so I can say with the Jews who are his biological descendants, I'm also a son of Abraham. And, I, and those blessings that are due to you also can come to me by way of Jesus through faith. And that song was right. So let's just praise the Lord. That brings us to the next thing in the text. The way of faith lets us inherit the promise of Abraham. The way of faith lets us inherit the promise of Abraham. We'll see this in verses 13 to verse 16. Let's pick back up in the text. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul now turns to address what would have been a glaring omission by uh, at least on the perspective of his imaginary opponent. He's not talked about the law. Paul has just finished saying that both Jews and Gentiles alike can be the spiritual descendants of Abraham and have the right to the blessing through faith. And as I mentioned previously, ancestry meant that you had to resemble a person in some way. For the Jews of Paul's day, of course, because they held up Abraham as the model of a lawkeeper, and that this was the reason he had received the blessing, then in their minds, if someone wanted to claim to be the spiritual descendant of Abraham and he was their spiritual ancestor, to participate in this blessing that was due to him and his descendants, then you needed to resemble Abraham by obeying the law like Abraham did as they asserted. Paul, on the other hand, after reviewing Scripture, comes along and stresses that both Jews and Gentiles alike look like Abraham, not by obeying the law, but exhibiting the kind of faith that he did in God, because that's what caused Abraham to be declared righteous. It was not his law keeping. It was his faith, because that's what the scripture actually says. Now, we know from the book of Genesis, starting off of Genesis chapter 12, that God is going to make or God made these promises to Abraham. He made these promises like, hey, look, you're going to have many descendants and they're going to come from many nations. That you're going to your family is going to be the way that I'm going to bring blessing to the world. And ultimately that you're going to inherit the land. Now, it appears here in the text that Paul is using this phrase inheriting the world. Now, it seems that there are some who are writers of the day, some few, not all agreed, but some wanted to use this word land, and they kind of expanded the meaning to incorporate 
the whole world because of the way the Hebrew works. Uh, they used it to kind of broaden this idea out. Ultimately, talk about the Messianic age and to talk about participation in the new heavens and the new earth. As you know, God made these promises to Abraham and his descendants as Paul has already laid out before the law was given. If we were to consider Galatians and what he says there, it seems like it was some 430 years before the law was given. And Paul goes on to argue that if the promises that God gave had to be obtained through law-keeping, then Abraham would have no spiritual descendants because as the point he's already made clear in the previous chapters, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are all guilty of sin. See, no one other than Jesus has kept the law. And Paul then argues that instead, the law doesn't bring promise. What it actually brings is wrath. Why does it bring wrath? Because it points out that we are sinners. And notice the word that he uses at the end of the text. He changes to a specific type of sin here because he's getting at a point, transgression. Now, Transgression is of the category of sin, but it's a specific type of sin. It's sin in this way. The sin of the transgression is the idea that you have gone over some limit or boundary that you shouldn't have gone over. So what the law does is it sets up boundaries that says, don't live this way, live this way. So when you sin now, the difference is you have knowledge of what you're not to do, and so you become all the more accountable because you transgress, go over the boundary of the law with full knowledge that what you're doing is wrong. And as a result, because you transgress with more knowledge, you bring more wrath upon yourself. So Paul says, in light of this, God acts in grace. In his kindness, he decided that inherited the promise would be based on the human side on faith so that everything would rest upon his grace. I like the way Dr. Kahn defines it. He says grace is a manner of acting apart from any condition or merit. God set up the system so that all you had to do was trust in what he had promised and done so that he could act toward you and I freely and do for us what we could not earn if we tried. And by doing it this way, God ensured that there would be humans from both Jews and Gentiles who would inherit the promise because otherwise, if it had been by law, none would ever get it. That brings me to my next point in the text. The way of faith causes us to trust God despite our circumstances. The way of God causes us to trust God despite our circumstances. Let's go back to the text. We'll pick up here at verse 17 and go through verse 22. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And he had, 
as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I like the way two professors talk about faith. And I want to share with you what they said. Dr. Ben Witherington put it this way. He says, faith is strong precisely because it looks solely to God and does not depend on human possibilities. It is not that faith ignores or denies historical realities. See, Abraham was convinced that the promise itself was powerful and that what God said would be accomplished. It is this remarkable faith and not just any sort of faith that was reckoned as righteousness. A faith that hoped against hope, a faith that in a time of testing did not give way to unbelief. A faith that gave glory to God then, a faith that was convinced and convicted that God could bring life out of death and accomplish what was humanly impossible. Dr. Moo put it this way, it is Abraham's conviction that God is fully able to do whatever he promised that enabled his faith to overcome the obstacle of the tangible and visible facts. See, it's not just any kind of faith that saves. James seems to allude that there are demons and they have a kind of faith. But the faith that he alludes to here is a faith in which God, that Abraham believes firmly in what God says, despite the reality of what he was experiencing. Abraham's life in his age point in the text says he had already moved beyond that stage in life where childbearing was possible. But instead of looking at his body and looking at Sarah's body and say, oh, woe is me. We will never be able to do this. He simply believed what God said, despite what his circumstances said. And he said, I don't care what reality looks like. If God said it, he's able to make it happen. Because remember, it was God who spoke at the beginning when there was nothing. And when nothing was there and it heard God's word, it became something. And it formed itself just like God said. So Abraham, knowing God as creator, believed that the creator had power, that when his word spoke, if reality didn't match up with his word, the word, the reality would change itself so that it aligned with what God said. And so Abraham said, instead of believing what I see, I'll believe what God has said. And so I say to you today, do you believe what God has promised? Do you believe that God actually has the ability to raise the dead, to bring life out of death? Are there circumstances in your life that are causing your faith to waver right now? To you, I say to you what Habakkuk said in a time when life was going topsy-turvy, the just shall live by faith. 
the just shall live by faith. Don't allow your circumstances to determine what you believe. Allow the word of God to determine it despite what you see in reality around you. Because ultimately it is God who holds the world in his hand. And it's his word that will stand even if the world doesn't look like it right now. And that's why Abraham's faith was counted, because he believed, he hoped against hope. That brings me to the last thing in the text. The way of faith leads us to Jesus. The way of faith leads us to Jesus. Let's look at the final three verses of the text of chapter 4. Picking up at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul wanted those, wanted those believers, whether Jew or Gentile, in Rome as well as us who he didn't even know would live so many years later that God had these things about Abraham and all these things in Scripture recorded for our benefit. This is not simply a theological, historical book in which we read and we walk away and say, oh, those are some nice facts. So glad I was able to learn a little bit more information about the world. No, God intends for his people to live according to what he has taken time to reveal to us. See, God wants us to have faith in him by believing in his son, Jesus Christ, whom, as the text says, as Paul said, was delivered by God over for our law-breaking, our transgressing of the law, and he was raised for our justification. Now, you remember in Jesus' life, he had declared himself to be the Messiah, but some of the Jewish leaders denied this, and they plotted against him, and ultimately their plan was executed, and he was executed as a result. But God overturned their declaration and proved them to be in the wrong and Jesus to be in the right. And in that moment, he was justified, declared to be right before God, and they were in the wrong before God's sight. And what Paul says is because of our union with Christ, we share in what is true of Christ becomes true of us. And thus we become a justified because we share in his justification. But because of the way Paul lays this out, and there's some argument between scholars of what, what direction Paul is looking, but most think this is forward-looking, that Paul also may be hinting at what he's going to bring out in chapter 5, which is this idea that we will also be justified before all of humanity on the day of our resurrection, just like Christ. Because on that day, it will become clear that our faith in God was right and that we're in a right relationship with God when we we're raised and put in the same kind of body as Jesus's glorified body. And in that moment, all will know that faith in Jesus was the right decision to put one at peace with God. And no one will be able to say in that day that you're wrong because of God's evidence by resurrection will prove otherwise that we have been justified by God because God is able to bring life out of death. And this is all simply because of God's grace. God has made a way by his grace for Jew and Gentile alike to have peace with him, to be declared in a right relationship through simply trust in his son. 
not by works that I bring. I don't have to worry about whether or not I fed enough homeless people. Did I, did, I, did I write enough letters to those who were sick? Did I make enough visits to the jail to be declared right by God? Did I, did I, did I keep all the right religious rituals? Should I get circumcised? Did I have to join Judaism? None of that comes to play. Did I keep the law well enough? Did I hold up the Ten Commandments? None of that necessary. Simply faith in Jesus. I believe the old hymn, Rock of Ages, in its second stanza sums it up well. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my seal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by thy grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. To I that I claim. Brothers and sisters, the way is faith through Jesus. Not works, not circumcision, not law. Just Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that you have worked out a way that we could have peace with you. We thank you that you didn't leave it upon our human effort because if it had been based on our human effort to keep some religious rituals, to abide by every statute of the law, to produce some good works, we would never do enough. We would never be faithful enough. We would never keep every ritual precisely enough. We thank you that it surely rests upon your grace and through faith alone in Jesus alone. And we praise you that it is your way that you set it up so we could have peace. And we give you the glory and the honor. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing a final song and then we'll dismiss you and let you be about your day.